0: After almost a decade's worth of preparation, billions of dollars of investment, strenuous technical development and endless training, on July the 16th, 1969, NASA launched Apollo 11 and four days later on the 20th of July, one man stepped out of the spacecraft and onto the moon, famously quipping that it was one small step for man and a giant leap for mankind. Can anybody tell me the name of that astronaut? Neil Armstrong, Armstrong, correct. Not as someone who will remain nameless suggested, Louis Armstrong. (laughs) When that launch took place, the world held its breath. Over 530 million people watched this mission live on television which was a record-breaking audience for the time. And Neil Armstrong became a household name. It's easy to miss, but likewise, only with a great deal less fanfare, in Acts 13, 2-3, we see the launch of Barnabas and Saul's mission into the unknown. It says, While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called, to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. It's easy to skim read those two verses and miss the significance of them. Yet this innocuous little passage marks the moment at which Saul truly steps in, into his new identity as Paul and acts as the starting line for his kingdom-expanding mission. I didn't actually realize until I started reading to prepare for this talk that after his Damascus road conversion and before joining the church in Antioch, Paul hadn't actually begun his ministry. He'd gone back to his home, Tarsus, where he worked for his father. And that was where Barnabas um, went to get him and asked him to join them. He arrived at Antioch Church as Saul the tentmaker, but he left as Paul the Apostle. It would be impossible to overemphasize the significance of this moment. In this scene, we are made privy to the moment at which the Antioch Church lit this spiritual super rocket and then launched him into the unknown, and the reverberations of this mission are still to be felt Today. I submit that Paul's mission has had an even greater impact on the world than that of Apollo 11. For on this journey, Paul flung open the gospel doors and beckoned in the Gentiles, insisting that nothing should obstruct those not of Jewish descent from entering into the kingdom. And as a result, millions of lives were saved. Going back to the Apollo mission... Neil Armstrong may very well have become a household name as a result of his foray into space, but the names of his two travelling companions, Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins, are less well-known, and I doubt that any of us would be able to name the men and women at Cape Kennedy Space Centre who made this mission possible. Likewise, most of us are familiar with the names of Paul and Barnabas, but fewer know the names of Simeon, Lucius and Mananian the prophets and teachers in the Antioch base camp who were responsible for laying hands on and commissioning Paul and Barnabas, let alone the names of the other men and women in Antioch who inspired, in, who inspired encouraged, prayed for and supported Paul and Barnabas both financially and in prayer, making this mission possible. Yet the base camps at Cape Kennedy in Antioch were the launching pads for these missions without their faithful service of these very many unheralded people working at both of the base camps, neither the Apollo nor the apostolic mission are likely to have taken place. So, when Mike asked me to speak about my hero in faith, the names of many uh, men and women flashed through my mind. Because let's face it, there's no shortage of heroes in the Bible. However, it is those unnamed rarely lauded investors at the Antioch base camp that I have chosen as my inspiration. And today I want to look at just two of the many reasons why they're my heroes. The first reason is that they were really ordinary people and the second reason is they were really extraordinary people. I say they were ordinary because in Acts 11, verse 19 to 21... We discover that the founders of the Antioch Church were not well known apostles or preachers; they were a group of unknown, unnamed Christian refugees. These men and women had previously been members of the congregation of the Jerusalem Church, but when the wave of persecution broke out after the stoning of Stephen, they fled their homes for fear of their lives, arriving at Antioch as refugees. There was more than one city at that time, actually called Antioch, but the Antioch referred to here, as mentioned earlier, is the Antioch in Syria. At this point, Syria was receiving refugees, not sending them out. This city was, according to Josephus, the third most influential city in the Roman Empire after Roman Alexandria. And it was a melting pot of Eastern and Western ideas with a thriving economy. And as one might expect of a major city, it was the center of commerce, science, art, and religion for its region. And it had a reputation for debauchery. Amongst the 500,000 residents who called it home were 70,000 Jews. We discover that these ordinary Jewish refugees arrived in what... We're Sorry we discover that when these ordinary Jewish refugees arrived in what was to be their new home, they caused a spiritual sensation, forming a vibrant, thriving and fast-growing church out of nothing. It's clear that one of the reasons that the founders of this church had such a profound impact is that unlike those who made the same journey with them, they shared their faith not only as would have been expected with the Jews, but with the Hellenists, that is, the Greek-speaking Gentiles. It's important to note that up to this point, in spite of Peter's revelation and his accepting Cornelius, the Roman centurion, and his family into the Jerusalem church, it had not been the general practice of the church to share their faith with Gentiles. You see, up to this point... The believers understood themselves to be Jewish, not members of a separate faith. They saw themselves as faithful Jews who had witnessed the arrival of the long-awaited Messiah. That's why they were still meeting in the Jewish temple as well as meeting separately. For them, Christ was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, not the creator of a new religion. And it's in this context that the founders of the Antioch church welcomed uncircumcised converts into their church. This was a seriously controversial decision and that is why the Jerusalem church sent Barnabas to see what was going on. When I think about the impact of this church and the mission they initiated, I find it astonishing to think that it was a church predominantly made up of the originating refugees and their Gentile converts, who cannot have been Christian for more than five or six years. How inspiring to think that these men and women, with their great faith but minimal theological instruction, could have such an incredibly profound impact on the world. In our church, we regularly pray, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I would suggest that in first century Antioch, that's exactly what happened. The reason I find the ordinariness of these um, people so encouraging is that many of my hearers in faith, both those I've read about in the Bible and those who, I've, uh, who I revere today, appear far more gifted than me. Reading about them or watching them in action can seem as daunting as it can inspirational. To be blunt, I find it very hard to believe that I could ever be a David or a Deborah or a Daniel. But the experience of the Antioch church unequivocally demonstrates that God can do extraordinary things through ordinary believers who have a wholehearted focus on God's kingdom. So, if the first reason the Antioch church family are my heroes is because they are ordinary, but they don't let their ordinariness prevent them from being used by God in an extraordinary way, the second reason I find them so inspirational is that their focus is on building God's kingdom, not on building their own empire. I uh, I once heard a recording by John Wimber He made it shortly before he died. Um, In case anybody doesn't know who John is, John was the founder of the vineyard movement and was responsible um, for charismatic renewal in many denominations um, over the world. John was raised in a non-Christian home and in the talk he spoke of the time shortly before he had come to faith when in a Bible study, he heard Matthew 13, verses 45 to 46 for the first time. This is a passage about the pearl of great price. It completely shocked him. In fact, he thought he must have misunderstood the meaning. So he asked the person leading the Greek what it meant. They asked in turn, John, what do you think it means? John said, It seems to me as if the passage is asking us to give up everything in order to follow Christ. And the leader responded, Well, that's what I understand it to mean, too. At this point in his life, John was part of a successful rock group that at the time had two singles in the American top ten. He had fame and fortune at his feet. However, as a result of what he heard in that meeting and as a result of the prompting of the Holy Spirit, he left the band, sold all his equipment and started instead working on a production line in a factory. He didn't give up his career in music because he knew what the future would hold. He gave it up regardless of what the future would look like for him. He gave it up because he believed relationship with God was infinitely more precious than anything that the world could offer him. He therefore wanted to invest his time and energy in kingdom goals, not worldly ones. When I heard that talk, I felt very challenged. There are times, usually when we're all worshipping together, when I truly believe I would surrender all to Christ. But actually... When the rubber hits the road, I'm afraid I'm not so sure. I recently read an article about an elderly widow in Greece. She's opened her home up to a family of Syrian refugees. She also had um, opened her home up to anybody who wanted to use the bathroom. If I looked at her home, she clearly wasn't very wealthy and didn't have very much to share but what she had, she did. She was open-handed. When interviewed, she said she felt it was the least she could do in the circumstances and said it was a joy to have them in her house and she valued the sense of community that had been built. The article didn't mention if she was a Christian or not, but she certainly acted like it. After reading the article... I wondered what I would do if we had the same large influx of refugees in Guildford. In our flat, uh, we have the luxury of a spare room, which is, doubles up as my office, the laundry, and a guest bedroom. It would therefore be more than possible for us to open our ha- house up to a family. And then as I thought about it, I started to give reasons why it was different for me. You see, I need an office, And I couldn't possibly concentrate if the house was full of people. How could I ever write my talks? No, it wouldn't do at all. And what if we had guests? And anyway, everybody would want to eat together and they wouldn't even speak the same language. It would be very awkward. I'd never get a moment to myself. I clearly shouldn't be expected to take this on. In fact, I even felt quite stressed thinking about it. And then it struck me. My situation is no different from the elderly widows and far from the fact that I have more to share. I just have a harder heart. It wasn't a comfortable moment. Focusing on God's kingdom rather than our lives on earth can be a challenge but I believe John Wimber, the lady in Greece and the Antioch church had surely done just that. And to me, that's what makes them extraordinary. Their focus was no longer on what the world could offer them, but how they could grow God's kingdom. The founders of the Antioch church demonstrated this focus when they chose to speak about their faith, both in Jerusalem and again in Antioch, even at the risk of losing their lives not, not so many years ago, I was, um, before I started the ordination process, I was working for the NHS. I joined a team that appeared to be made up of atheists, agnostics, and one rather vociferous and aggressive member of a cult. I believed I was the only Christian on the team. And as a result, I did receive a certain amount of flack, but I also had the privilege of engaging several of my colleagues in conversation about spiritual matters and God. It was two years before I discovered that at least half my team considered themselves to be Christians. It's just that they hadn't felt fit, they hadn't seen fit to blow their cover. When per- persecution broke out in Jew- Jerusalem, I'm sure there were some believers who were tempted to act like my colleagues, as undercover Christians. After all, if they kept a low profile, persecution wouldn't have been a problem. They wouldn't have had to leave their homes, families, careers and security. It's only because there was enough evidence that they were believers that there was a serious threat to their lives. It must have taken true courage to stand up and be counted in those circumstances. That, in itself, is impressive. But one of the most extraordinary things about the founders of the Antioch church is that having just arrived in Syria, their new home, they haven't, hadn't learned from their life-threatening experience in Jerusalem to be more discreet about their faith and focus their energies on the not-insubstantial task of finding new homes, new ways of earning a living, and new friends. Instead, we're told, they told anyone and everyone who was willing to listen about their faith in Jesus. So much so that for the first time ever, believers became known as Christians. I strongly suspect that was a derogatory term when it was introduced, it means those who speak about the Messiah, but should probably be understood to be the shorthand for that lot who won't stop going on about Christ. It's clear that the focus of those who founded this church was above else, all else on, on growing God's kingdom. That's why they risked their good reputation and witness to the Antioch Gentiles as well as the Jews. And that's why they generously gave away their resources as every opportunity. I believe a kingdom focus is what lay behind their generous response to the prophecy of famine in verses 27 to 29. And that's what impelled them, after only one year of having them with them, to release Paul and Barnabas to serve other communities. Even though these men are likely to have been the only two theologically trained members of their congregation. It's clear that seeing God's kingdom grow was more important to these believers than growing their own church. For them, the true vibrancy of a church should be measured not by the number of people attending the services, but by the number of spirit filled believers sent out. When I very first became a Christian, which is uh, over 20 years ago, a man came to our church to talk about the benefits of investing in de- the development of new churches. Church planting. He had said something that had an incredible impact on me. He said, A shrewd investor always looks to invest their money wisely. They look for somewhere to put their money that pays good dividends. He went on to say, Likewise, as Christians, we should intentionally invest our spiritual gifts wisely. He explained, if you invest in witnessing to one person and they become a Christian, you have a sharehold in their faith. And this is a good investment. However, he went on to say, if you invest in a church plant, your inheritance includes not just one person, but a church load of people. And that makes an even better investment. But, he concluded, the best investment you can make is to invest in a church plant that itself plants new churches and teaches these churches to do the same. In that way, the initial investor has shares not only in the lives of all those who attend the first church plant, but also in the many subsequent church plants, and that is a truly sensational investment. Seen from that perspective, the Antioch church sent Paul and Barnabas out, and when they did that, they made the best possible investment. Because on this mission, Paul not only inaugurated many new churches in many new places, but he opened the way for Gentiles to enter the kingdom of God. Therefore, I submit, all of us in this congregation here today, who cannot claim to have any Jewish inheritance, are here in part as a result of Paul's work. And that means that those men and women at the Antioch base camp who invested in Paul and Barnabas our shareholders in yours and my faith too. Whatever way you look at it, these guys made an incredible impact. To go back to the analogy of the Apollo mission, these ordinary but kingdom-focused, risk-taking and generous believers managed to create a church which acted as a launch pad for spirit-filled Christians to boldly go where no man has gone before expanding God's kingdom and transforming lives wherever the spirit led them. And that is why I find them truly inspirational. And that is why they are my heroes. Thank you. I just wanted to finish by saying, as I look around here, I've now got to know quite a few people in the congregation. And I see the kingdom growing work that you are doing and I find what you are doing truly inspirational as well. Whether it's through this work of Cameo, whether it's through intercession, whether it's through the way that you talk to your neighbours, how you are at work or at home, you are expanding God's kingdom and I'm very proud to be part of this vibrant congregation. And I wanted to um, Finish by giving us an opportunity to ask God just to fill us with His Holy Spirit so that He would magnify the gifts that He's given us and we might see many extraordinary transformations as the result of our individual ministries. So, um, can I invite you to stand?